Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. And this week, as Jason Kong, our producer, usually does, we have a topic that many of our listeners, in fact, probably all of our listeners, are vitally concerned about, and that's education in the state of North Carolina. And uh, North Carolina has always been sort of an interesting state because we've always put education as sort of a top burner project. Uh, Our college and university system and our uh, community college system is probably one of the best in the country. But we uh, have always had a little bit more difficulty with K through 12. And uh, that was the reason why some 100 business leaders got together and formed an organization called Best NC. And that stands for Business for Education, Success, and Transformation in North Carolina. And the head of that organization is Brenda Bird. And she has been our guest numerous times. But uh, each time she brings some new data and some new insights to us. And so, Brenda, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you back with us. So glad to be here. Well, I want to just jump right in and let you sort of begin to tell us a little bit about what you and Jason were talking about when we when I joined uh, the two of you just a few moments ago. So tell us tell us about that. Well, you caught me on a great day. Literally this morning, we rolled out a new policy brief um, called Teacher Pay in North Carolina, a smart investment in student achievement. And I'll, I'll back up just a little bit. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I do represent about 100 business leaders in the state who believe North Carolina can have the best education system in the nation for exactly the points that you made in your opening. And and it takes brave Kind of innovative thinking to to do that, and so this report really is is along the lines of our our thinking from the beginning of the inception of Best NCs. We believe that we can have the best education system in the nation. We have to focus on the things that matter most, and the single most important factor in school factor out of school factor are parents. But the greatest in-school factor for student outcomes is the quality of their teachers. And so we really wanted to, instead of having these sort of, dare I say, superficial conversations about average pay and pay rankings, really delve into what does the workforce look like? Who are our teachers? What does the, the pipeline of talent look like? Should we pivot because we are no longer you know, living in the same world as we were even, you know, a few years ago, much less 40 or 50 years ago, or 100 years ago when the current teacher pay scale was developed. And so this new report, which people can find on our website on bestnc.org under our policy briefs, um, is 60 pages of really fantastic analysis from my my team, um, looking at all of those different elements, and making a case that not only do we need to increase teacher pay, absolutely, but we need to do it in a smart, strategic way and can rethink moving away from what we call the, the the step and lane schedule that we've always had in the past. And happy to dig into that more. Well, first of all, describe that, the step and lane. So the, the step and lane. Yeah, the step and lane schedule, basically, the way we describe it, and you can see some interesting videos on our website, is We've developed the education system around the concept of the factory. And you think about, you know, we're in, we have kids in seats for certain blocks of time. It's very much a hundred year old model of education. 
but we also treat our teachers very much like factory workers. We sort of act like we can have one teacher in one classroom with, say, 25 kids and then another teacher next door and as if they're all going to be the same and it's all plug and play. And our pay schedule represents the same concept. The pay schedule, when I say step and lane, steps are your number of years and lane is your credentials, your degrees that you've attained. And the intention behind that model, again, 100 years ago, was because, to be honest, women were being paid less than men, Black teachers were being paid less than white teachers, and they wanted to have a uniform pay schedule. And that made good sense at the time. And the thinking was years of experience and credentials are roughly correlated with how well you're going to be as do as a teacher. Well, it turns out <laughs> 100 years later, um, there's very little correlation with between credentials beyond, of course, a college degree and really, really good pedagogical training. Um, and past a certain point, and that point is around five to seven years, there's not a whole lot of difference between a 10-year teacher and a 25-year teacher. And so, and then what is different, though, is it's really hard to hire a math teacher. Because when you graduated out of the UNC system, uh, you're making $10,000 more out of the box than someone with another degree. And it's really hard to hire someone to go into what we call a hard to staff school, which could be a high poverty school or a rural school. Um, and, and the way pay works is you pay more if it's harder to fill. And now you pay more just because it's a harder job. And so, um, again, you go back to that step and lane schedule where it was really designed with the best of intentions, but now, 100 years later, we can do better. So uh, how, how do you make a transition? Because, uh, you know, so many people are accustomed to the way we're doing it, and so many school systems are already set up that way. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that science teachers are harder to find, as you pointed out, math teachers are harder to find than, say, English teachers. I'm, I'm just guessing. Yeah. Uh, so how do you make that transition and how do you decide who gets the bigger bucks? <laughs> mm, it's such a good question. Yeah, and I think that's why we took this really multifaceted approach in our report. So our recommendations page is really long and <laughs> with a lot of recommendations and they're all layered because the bottom line is what we found is teachers aren't paid enough. So regardless of whether you're talking about a STEM teacher or an English teacher or an art teacher, they all, um, as a group, particularly earlier in their career, are not being paid enough. So you really start with what we call the kind of the personal need to be able to support a family. And, and then you start working on how do we fill those STEM positions? How do we fill those hard to staff schools? How do we create teacher leaders positions within the school building. Um, so I, I don't think the conversation is an or conversation. I think it's really, really important that it's an and conversation so that everyone is um, everyone is winning. And and that's sort of the, I, I, you, you hate to say that we're struggling, that we're kind of we're not where we need to be on, on pay. But being at that place means that we have an opportunity to invest a significant amount of money to buy reform. So that everyone is winning, but we're able to fill those those voids um, along the way as well. Does that, if that makes sense? Did your study have anything to do with people coming in and teaching maybe one hour a day in a high degree, especially like a, a science a expert or a math expert, for example, that could get away from their full time job and teach one 
hour a day in the classroom of a K through 12 school? There are some studies underway um, on that. I, I would say as a rule of a general rule of thumb, I think what is really important to remember is it is hard to be a teacher, regardless of, of subject that you, uh, you know, I teach, I teach college level classes and you think, oh, well, I walk in and I can teach the class and I can, but especially in K-12, there's a lot of pedagogy and a lot of training that happens. And that's why our college graduates who are trained in how to be a teacher outperform our teachers who don't. So we, you can walk in, not necessarily for one hour a day, but you can walk in off the street with a bachelor's degree and get uh, kind of a temporary emergency license or um, a residency license. But generally speaking, the what we find is that you're you're not going to do as well if you're not really well prepared and and that's a big investment for somebody who's just going to come in one or two hours a day now could there be outliers absolutely teach for america is a great example of an outlier generally it takes five to seven years to to reach a certain average kind of point of being of, of teaching quality and our teach for america teachers are outperforming that because they're coming in kind of top of their class you know um, you know, high achieving students. So there are always going to be outliers to that. Some of our best teachers of the year are residency teachers who came in lateral entry. But as a rule of thumb, I would say our better investment is really finding a quality 100,000 teachers we have in North Carolina, have a really high quality core of 100,000 teachers who are really well prepared and walking in um, and building those relationships with kids. Because I I, the learning isn't important, but as we saw in COVID, learning off of a machine, for example, it's the relationships that matter. It's those relationships that teachers are building. So I think there's a lot of evidence that, yes, we could plug and play a little bit. I think there's some opportunities for um, specifically for maybe higher subject areas like AP classes to have somebody coming in on a mentor capacity, but it's not... Um, I don't think it's a, a common practice. Well, we did, you know, uh, COVID, of course, was a, an interesting time period for uh, many, many walks of life and many different businesses and many different categories. But one of the things I think we learned in education was uh, the classroom experience uh, in person uh, just beats any other model. Yeah. Absolutely. It was uh, the we have a fantastic office of um, learning uh, recovery um, and acceleration at the Department of Public Instruction that's done a lot of research in North Carolina on COVID. And they found definitively that schools where students were getting back into the classroom sooner, those students did much better. And it, you know, I mean, we all kind of intuitively wanted our kids to be back in the building, but I don't think we could have possibly imagined that it was that big of an impact, right? I think you think, oh, well, all of the kids are doing this and they're all on screen and we've got a whole you know, army of people designing these online models, everything's gonna be fine. And it was it was borderline disastrous. Um, and our state is working really, really hard to recover from that. The model that you're talking about switching to, how does that play out with say charter schools? So the, the charter schools have funding flexibility. They get to, and also licensure flexibility. So they can hire 
whomever they want and pay at whatever level they want. Um, the hope, I think, with charter schools is always that they would model innovation and we would be able to learn from that. Uh, unfortunately, what I find with, with most of our charter schools, and I understand why this is true, but they tend to pay on the same schedule that the public public schools do. Sometimes they will accelerate, they'll get maybe two years, so they're kind of front-loading the schedule, but we're not seeing a lot of innovation. I, so the model wouldn't affect charter schools that much in the fact that they already have flexibility to do what they want, but it would affect them because we are talking about a pretty significant pay increase and that money would flow to the charter schools just like it would flow to tr traditional schools. Well, it's an interesting situation. Anytime you change a model that has been in existence as long as this one, uh, there are all sorts of uh, bumps in the road and, and things that come along that say, well, no, you can't do that. Right. We expect a lot. That's why the, the, the Department of Public Instruction is proposing a pilot. So let's start with a, a dozen or so school districts that are the coalition of the willing. Um, it will build off of something we're already piloting called advanced teaching roles. And we'll, we'll, we'll do this in a smart kind of science-based approach as opposed to trying to magically wave a wand and change this overnight. There, too, there are too many um, people's lives at stake to, to just try and do this overnight. It's important to do this right. Our guest is Brenda Berg. She's the president of Best NC, and we'll, we'll be back with more as we talk about K through 12 education and our system here in North Carolina. And we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mind. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Brenda Berg, who is the president and CEO of Best NC. Uh, we gave you earlier a, uh, a little bit of a background. Uh, Best stands for B, business, for A, E, education, success, and transformation. And it was formed and is still sponsored by some 100 business leaders who are uh, interested in seeing that North Carolina uh, transform and improve the, especially the K through 12 system in North Carolina. And Brenda Berg has been with the organization from its infancy. Tell us a little bit more, just a little bit more about the organization and, and uh, how it's funded and, and how it's grown. 
uh, Brenda, if you would, and then we'll get back to more of the topics of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled. I, I'm so honored to be um, the founding CEO of this organization, and I can't believe I'm sitting at about eight years since we launched our initial um, concept of educator innovation. About 80% of the work that we do is is in a firm belief that we can improve education by improving the the pipeline of talent in our school, our school leaders and our teachers, um, better support, better compensation, better licensure practices, better tools to do their jobs. Um, and that's really coming from the fact that the business community knows human resources and personnel. And we spend a lot of time in our own businesses thinking about how do we recruit and pay and support and retain great talent with our, within our own companies. And then we apply um, some of that learning, recognizing the public sector has its differences. But generally speaking, an employee cares about a lot the same things, whether or not they're working in the private sector or the public sector. And so the business community has really leaned in on that belief that uh, employees deserve, you know, great work experience, and that your 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 people in your organization are your your greatest asset. So, one of the the ways that we do this is we also we're really grounded in data. So people can come to our website and find data on kind of the state of of the state of education in North Carolina from pre K all the way through higher education. We have a ton of, of, of research. Every year we publish a, a guide called the Facts and Figures Guide that can be downloaded off of our website. We have heat maps. You can find per pupil expenditure heat maps for every single school in the state of North Carolina. Um, and, and that helps ground a much more productive conversation, right? We believe that we should be spending our time arguing uh, nicely uh, around ideas instead of arguing around facts that can already be established. So we spend a lot of time with data and research. And then we spend a lot of time convening. We spend our time talking with principals and teachers and, and going into school districts and um, convening conversations with national and sometimes international experts. So we, you know, and when it comes down to it, we convene and we form, inform and we we advocate um, around this this idea that we can we can have the best education system in the nation. Brenda, this is uh, something that's always sort of bothered me for years and years. North Carolina obviously has a great reputation nationwide for our higher education system. The University of North Carolina system with its campuses from uh, east to west and led by the the uh, two research universities, uh, UNC Chapel Hill and NC State, uh, but also some other really great institutions in that organization. And then we are also well known for our work with the community college system. Why do you think that K through 12 is always sort of lag behind uh, in a state where Obviously, we put a lot of emphasis on education, but we seem to have always been sort of missing the boat a little bit in K through 12. That is a really good question. I, I look back at our history on education, and when it comes to K-12, we were one of the first states to have you know mandatory school and uh, we transformed our funding model in 1931 when no other state was thinking about finance reform, and that affected both K-12 and higher education. And then flash, go fast forward, uh, we were the first state in the country to have universal all-day kindergarten. No other state in the country had that. It was 1974, I think. 
And today there are 18 states that don't have universal all-day kindergarten. Um, so we have a history of, of really innovating around K-12. Smart Start you know, was born here in North Carolina, NC Pre-K, um, the Career and College Promise program where you can take for free community college classes during high school is really almost unheard of in the rest of the country. So we are doing really big, bold, brave things. And I wonder if some of the fact that we're not getting um, play on it is we don't have a defined K-12 leader in North Carolina. I think when you when you Governor Holzhauser was the governor when we had universal um, kindergarten and Governor Hunt was an education governor. And there you had these people who sort of stood up and said, I'm going to set the vision for the state of North Carolina. And now we have, you know, the governor has their input and their perspective. And then you have the appointed state board of education and you have an elected superintendent. And it's kind of hard for somebody to sort of stand up and wave the flag and say, we are doing really great things here in North Carolina. doesn't mean we're not doing great things, but to your point, we're not getting recognized for great things. We have by far the best principal recruitment and preparation pipeline in the entire country right now. And it's been in place now for about seven years and produced over 400 principals. No one knows about it. It's the best kept secret. We're the only state in the nation where we're creating uh, advanced teaching roles, statewide opportunities for teachers to get promoted within their school building without having to leave the classroom. Uh, we're the only state in the nation that pays our principals on a combination of how hard their school building is and how good they are instead of just years of experience. Um, we're the only state in the nation that has a law that says that if you do really well on your final math class, that you get placed in an advanced math course the next year. So there are all these things where we can we can be really proud of the state of North Carolina, but I, I do wonder if there's just kind of a lack of marketing <laughs> to to get the word out there. And I, I hope that once we start getting across kind of the 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 tipping point on some of these initiatives that will start to see more attention turned to North Carolina and the great things that are happening here. Well, of course, the backdrop of the state itself, because you've got 20, 22 counties that are basically more metropolitan than the other 75 or so counties that are more rural in nature. Some of the counties are very small. We've got counties that are, you know, whole, an entire county population is less than 5,000 people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you've got uh, Mecklenburg and uh, Wake counties that have, you know, a million people. Uh, so the the distribution of the population has to be part of that factor because that in itself is inconsistent. Yeah, it is really interesting, right? I mean, our school systems like Wake County and Charlotte fall into, I think, certainly the top 25 largest districts in the country. But then our smaller districts were the second most rural state in the country, to your to your point. So we have to have policies that kind of span the whole spectrum. But I also think that that's why we should be a model for the rest of the country, because if you can do it here, you can do, kind of do it anywhere. We can we can model it for for the rest of the country. But um, but you're right. It is a it is a very unique. There are a lot of things about North Carolina, though, that are unique. The fact that most of our school districts are countywide is very unique. Um, to North Carolina. So you do have these really, really, you know, on average large districts, but that creates a lot of fairness because whatever side of the district you're on, you have more um, uh, resource equity um, for, ac across the districts. So, so there are a lot of things that are really unique structurally about North Carolina as well. 
Well, and then to you know, you can uh, how you can keep uh, keep them down on the farm. In other words, uh, <laughs> a, a teacher comes out of uh, say Chapel Hill or East Carolina or Appalachian State or NC State or wherever, and uh, they have a choice of where they want to live. And uh, so the livability of people yep. in those twenty counties that we talked about that are more progressive, Alamance County. Rowan County, uh, Gaston County, for example, along with those that we've already mentioned, uh, creates a situation where they say, well, I think I'd rather live there than, say, live in Vance County or some mm -hmm. of the smaller counties that are uh, further away from the opportunities of uh, travel with airports, uh, mm -hmm. probably further away from really good hospital care and so forth. So how do, you, how do you ever, how, how do you make people want to live yeah. in a rural area that uh, is a little foreign to them? Yeah, it's, it was, I had a, an interesting conversation with some graduate students the other day about this. And, and it, there's only it, the, the amount of money you have to pay for somebody to live in a community where uh, they don't have a coffee shop or a, you know, a social life at night. Um, it, it, there's really not a dollar amount that you can put on that to attract talent to a different part of the state than where you're from. But you can grow your own, right? So, you know, we have a pretty substantial portion of the population that's not even going to college that is well qualified to go to college. So how what do we need to do to get into middle schools and high schools and start growing our own talent within your community, having um, early college opportunities, having um, two plus two community college opportunities? Because like you said, you, you move on over to Chapel Hill or NC State, you may not be moving back home. Uh, how do we kind of keep people within their own communities, keep those roots in their communities? So, yes, you pay uh, a, a above, frankly, your community's average wage and 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 make it really attractive to stay home, you know, where your family is, where that, that becomes your compelling factor and not necessarily the like we talked about this, the social life. In our report, you'll see some of our comparisons of, of you know, living wage and and cost of living in Halifax County, the cost to buy a home on average is $100,000. And the average income for uh, someone with a bachelor's degree is well below that of a teacher. So if we can get to talent within that community early on and say, this is a reason to go to college because now you can come back and have this, this um, really great income for your community. I, I, that's where we need to be looking for talent, not trying to move people around the state. And of course, as you pointed out, the cost of living in the, those 20 counties that we're talking about or 22 counties or so that are proxies, the cost of living is higher. It and is. Uh, so yeah. that, that that works against the, the, the uh, salary level. That's right. And, and the, the local, there's a lot of conversation about local salary supplements. And yes, Wake County offers a, a substantial salary supplement on top of the base wage, but it is substantially more expensive to live in Wake County, right? So, and it's a virtuous cycle because the, the districts that have more income to then spend on local um, supplements also cost more to live in, and that's why they have more income, right? So, so I'm less concerned, honestly, about the local supplement money as opposed to making sure that that core base pay that the state is providing is really competitive. Um, and then because the, the local supplement tends to correlate with the cost of living. 
Well, it's, it's an interesting situation. And of course, uh, education is not the only area of concern for those uh, uh, bottom 20 counties, uh, those more isolated counties in North Carolina, as far as their economic growth. Uh, it goes far beyond just uh, teachers and, and uh, school systems and so forth. And it's, it's a real challenge. There's no doubt about it. Well, and a lot of those spend... communities, the education is the highest, the biggest employer in the community. That's another thing to think that's about, an, right? That's right. an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Well, in the next segment, we want to talk about the importance of principals uh, and school administrators uh, on uh, how a school can improve and does improve often with uh, uh, the leadership at the top, whether it be the principal or the superintendent of schools or so forth. And we'll do that when we return with our guest, Brenda Berg, who's the president and CEO of Best North Carolina, an advocacy organization that worries about uh, improving the state of K-12 education in the state of North Carolina. We'll be right back after these messages. Who said that? Me, down here. What are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it, unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers, the president and CEO of Best North Carolina, who's uh, been in that role since its inception some eight years ago, and that's Brenda Berg. And uh, we've already talked about the organization. Brenda, of course, is a, uh, I think you're a graduate of Georgetown, as I, I believe I remember double, that. Correct? Double graduate from Georgetown, yep. I, as, so when I moved down here, I got lots of bless your hearts. Yeah. But, uh, we're, yeah, you know, you learn what bless your heart means in North Carolina. Um, and um, that's that's something that's very important for our staters to understand. When someone says bless your heart, that means it. They mean it. Uh, Brenda, we, uh, you, you call, have called our attention in previous times when you've been with us, the importance of principles to high schools and elementary schools and how a principal can lead a school to improvement, um, and that same principal can move from one school to the other, and guess what? The school where they move also improves. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your work in increasing the pay and the uh, opportunities for principals. 
Yeah, I, I'm. A, you'll hear me talk all the time. I'm a teacher groupie, um, but I am more so a principal groupie because great teachers want to work for great principals, and it's it's the it's true anywhere, right? In any job, usually in the top three, sometimes in the top five reasons for for either going to a job or leaving a job is leadership. And uh, when when we started this work, when Boston Seed was first formed, and I started talking to leaders around the state. I couldn't beg for a conversation. No one would talk about principals. It was always about teachers, which is fantastic. But when you talk with teachers, they're telling stories about inconsistent policies or, um, you know, not feeling respected or not getting support. And, and those were issues that came to the top way before conversations about, about pay or frankly, anything else. And so we started working really first off on the principal problem. And, and frankly, it's the principal opportunity because, as you said, a great principal can immediately, really, really, very, very quickly turn around a school. And uh, the first thing we discovered was that the pipeline for becoming a principal was just not, um, it, was, it didn't make any sense. We had teachers basically nominating themselves into the principalship and paying for their own leadership training, a master's degree in school administration. And in the private sector, you wouldn't do that, right? You'd go, you'd go to your workforce, your talent, you would look for those key leaders and you would provide them with that training um, and not put that financial and time burden on them. And so the state of North Carolina in 2015 passed a law that uh, went into effect in 2017, where we have something now called the, it's now been rebranded under the Principal Fellows brand. Um, but we now provide a master's in school administration to top talent who are recruited from within their school districts to become principals and really rethought that whole pipeline, removed the financial burden from those principals. But what most important, you know, there's a rigorous nominating process. The programs have every incentive to um, triage the candidates according to their quality because they, the programs themselves, get judged on the quality of their graduates. And then the students are part of cohort models they're they're following best practice and leadership training and most important they are they are getting a full year of paid residency um, shadowing an effective principal so we have this incredible pipeline of principal talent here in north carolina we've graduated over 400 of these principal fellow candidates um, in the last couple of years and just for context we have about 2600 schools in the state that's a big sort of um, uh, core of candidates that are now coming into the pipeline. And, and they're all, um, most are still assistant principals and, and heading quickly into principalship. Um, so that's one piece of it is making sure that we're recruiting the right talent, but also preparing them in the right ways. And then as you pointed out, we also have to pay them well. So uh, just a, a year or so after we passed to help work on that policy, um, North Carolina was deemed the worst state in the nation for principal pay. We were la dead last, maybe second to last, certainly last in the Southeast. And that gave us an opportunity to say, okay, we're going to put more money into principal pay, but we're going to rethink you know, how we do it. And so North Carolina is now the only state in the nation that has a model. In my opinion, it can be refined and enhanced, but it's the, the concept is that we're going to pay you on how hard the building is that you lead. Right. That makes perfect sense. If it's a harder building to leave, we're going to pay you more. And then if you're really good at that, we're going to pay you more. Um, and so it's it's a combination of the complexity of the job and and uh, your performance in the job. 
And within, um, and a, a major investment was made. The legislature put $55 million into principal pay in those first three years and have continued to make substantial pay increases since then. So we're now, our principals are, are in the top three in the Southeast. It wasn't an extravagant amount of money. It was a very wise investment. And a, a research study over at NC State within just a few years found that our best principals were moving to higher needs schools and our lowest performing principals were finding other jobs. Um, it, it, it's, you know, that's what you you would hope to see. I, um, you know, I'm hoping those principals went back into teaching or maybe they went to, into administration, but we really want to make room for the best possible principal candidates to be leading our buildings. And that's the best gift you can possibly give to a teacher and certainly to those students in the building. So I, 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 again, I think this is one place where over the next few years, you're going to start hearing about how North Carolina is really leading the nation on how we recruit and prepare and support and compensate and retain our principals. Um, and I think we're only going to continue to do better. It's exciting. It's exciting work. Has the attrition of principals gone down since uh, uh, you've increased the pay and increased the opportunity? I wish I could tell you that. But would you believe me when I tell you we have no data on principal attrition, and we have never collected data as a state on principal attrition. Um, we actually have been proposing this year new language that we would start collecting that data for the first time ever, like we do for teachers. We've been collecting teacher attrition data for a very long time. Um, so no, we have we have no, unfortunately, we have no data on that. Um, and, and it's a little tricky with principals because some will come into the principalship and then go out and they'll go to central office and then they'll go back into a classroom. Um, it's not quite as linear as, you know, you're, you're teaching or you're not teaching. Um, yep. it's, it's not quite as easy to measure. So we're working on that and, and trying to get some better data. And again, this is just a perfect example of how principals until really just the last few years have been an afterthought, um, in the policy process when they are just such an incredibly important factor. There's, you know, one of my favorite schools, I won't, I won't name had just this incredible principal and they recently pulled her to their central office and the very first year that she was gone, the school went from exceeding growth to not. And, you know, so it goes it goes both ways. You put a great principal in a school building um, and and that um, and keeping great principals in the school building is something we also need to be thinking about. Well, that's that's a, a, a practice that business also, unfortunately, has from time to time. Yeah. Uh, some companies take their very best salespeople and make them sales managers. Right? Because they're a great salesperson does not necessarily mean they're a great sales manager. Uh, and so from time to time, I guess we hurt ourselves by promoting from within to what appears to be a better job right. and a better use of the talent. But in fact, it's it's not an upgrade for either the person or the uh, the institution. Well, and this is also what I love about advanced teaching roles. So it, traditionally, it's been very binary. And to your point, you're either a teacher or you're a school leader. And those are really your, can you go, you could go to central office, you could be an instructional coach. There are these kind of, you can move different directions. But generally speaking, those are your two options. And so now we've created advanced teaching roles, and that's even along a spectrum. But roughly speaking, there are two different new, new positions that we're creating for teachers 
not removing them from the classroom, not adding more layers of bureaucracy, but just shifting the way we think about that one teacher, one classroom concept, giving teachers an opportunity who do have an aptitude for leading others to lead a team of teachers. So really removing those barriers, opening the doors between classrooms and having one teacher with six or eight direct reports and all of the students that they work with all working together. Um, that's one category of, of advanced teaching roles. And those teachers are earning up to $20,000 more without leaving the classroom. To your point about, you know, private industry has has learned this mistake along the way too, right? So you, and, and for those who are just really great teachers and just want to do more, but they don't want to lead adults, there's something called extended impact teaching, uh, where you can earn, say, $5,000 more taking on more students, taking on a harder classroom, but not necessarily, to your point, not everyone is is wanting to lead adults if you're just really, really good at teaching students. But currently, what we do when we have a great teacher is one of two things. The principal will either overload them to death, right? You're really great. I'm just going to keep giving you more kids and never being able to compensate them more because our compensation schedule doesn't allow it. Or understep under um utilizing them right my gift to you because you're a great teacher is instead of 25 students i'm giving you 15 and i'm depriving 10 kids of having access to you so at those two approaches are, are pretty much the norm in our school system and if we've created this new model called advanced teaching roles where a school principal can now promote teachers into paid roles to either take on, you know, more responsibility or take on a leadership role without having to leave teaching. And that's pretty exciting. And what we're finding from that is not just that those teachers who are taking on those roles are staying, that retention is increasing, but the teachers they're working with are getting better and their retention is getting higher as well. So it's having this, you know, one plus one equals three kind of effect within the school buildings. So we're really excited about that. And that's part of the recommendations that are in our new report as well. What are you doing to uh, help school systems maintain young teachers who might be looking at leaving the teaching profession for another profession? Yeah, so the highest retention problem in our school system is in those early years. And um, the the biggest reasons we hear Pay is always important, but it's not usually in the top five. Leadership is usually very important. But importantly, it's it's getting the kind of on-the-job embedded support that other industries are much better at providing. Um, when you walk into a company um, in, in, in the private sector or in other public sector jobs, you'll usually have a mentor, you'll have somebody who's looking over your shoulder for a while, you know, that you get the lightest workload, you don't get the biggest account to work on. Um, and in education, we do exactly the opposite. We're throwing these brand new teachers into the deep end of the pool, we're giving them a harder classroom because we're giving our, our better teachers a lighter load as their gift and compensation. Um, we really do it backwards. So advanced teaching roles, improved um, teacher compensation, this new licensure strategy that's being proposed in the state called Pathways to Excellence for Teaching Professionals, categorizes those beginning teachers as license one, two, or three, and provides them with intentional support from an advanced roles teacher and specific time that they're allotted that a, 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 another um, professional is, is working with them in the classroom. 
And that is so far our single best tool for improving retention for beginning teachers. You know, everybody wants to be really good at their job. And, and the people who are leaving the teaching profession are, are not as high performing as their peers. And it's not because we're getting rid of the bad teachers. That's sort of a way to look at it. It's because we're losing the teachers who are not being supported to be great teachers. And so we really need to kind of reframe that thinking about who's leaving the profession and what we need to do to support them. And you, you've got it right. We have to work with those beginning teachers. You said we had 2,600 schools uh, across the state. How many teachers do we actually have in North Carolina in the public school system? We've or do you a, have a number? Yeah, of course I have that number. <laughs> Go to our facts and figures guide. It's 101,000 teachers between the traditional uh, traditional and charter schools in the state of North Carolina. That's a, that's a big number. And yes. uh, so you're always going to have lots of problems and challenges. We've got one more segment with Brenda Berg, who is the president of Best NC, and we want to talk about the role of the parent and the relationship between the teacher and the parent, and the parent's responsibilities in this role of educating our youngsters. And we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers, our final segment for this week. Our guest is Brenda Berg, who is uh, our uh, expert on what's uh, happening in the field of education and how we in North Carolina are working with business leaders uh, to improve it. It's interesting how important business leaders think the education system is to the economic growth in North Carolina. And uh, so they take a vital role in insisting uh, that our General Assembly and our other leaders on the county level uh, do the very best they can and provide them with the very best. But there's another group of people that are vitally concerned with all this, and that's the parents. And Brenda, I go back to <laughs> the dark ages. When I was in school, the first month of September, every homeroom teacher would visit in the home of the parents of the students. Now that's impossible today, but it was 
uh, a very good way for the parent and the teacher to have a relationship. Right. And um, uh, a personal relationship. And, of course, then that carried over to a more active PTA, Parent Teachers Association, or PTO, Parent Teachers Organization. So let's talk a little bit about the role of the parents and the and the relationship between what would be ideal to have as a relationship between teachers and parents. Yeah, uh, that's so important. I always talk about how teachers are the most important in-school factor for a student's success. And of course, the parents are the number one factor of all. And and it's, you know, it it also tracks back to whether or not the parents went to college and whether they have a stable income and all of these other factors. But parents' involvement with encouraging their students to take the most rigorous classes that they can and get their homework done on time. The parents play, you know, a vital role. Um, and they can't really do that unless they have trust, you know, that they trust that what's happening in the building is working for their child. And I, I love your example of teachers coming to visit families and we still hear of that. Um, sometimes it's virtual and sometimes actually in person. We had a, a principal during COVID who hand delivered graduation signs to every house in their community uh, for their graduating seniors. So there's, and, and it's those buildings where you have a, a strong relationship between the principal and the teachers and the parents where you're not facing the sort of I hate to use the word culture wars, but the the culture wars that we're hearing today where there's this tension sometimes between parents and schools because there's transparency and there's trust and and there's a feeling of being you know welcomed and being part of the solution. And you know it's it, there's I um there are tools and there's there are better ways to do it. And I think that for, that's a big part of why we've been so focused on the principal fellows program and making sure that, from the very beginning, we are recruiting our future school leaders to have that kind of mindset that parents are part of the solution. They're not part of the problem. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm glad you raised that point. I'd love to see more, at least virtual home visits between parents and, and teachers. And there's also a level, I think, that we're teacher parents. All of us have been to school, right? And we have children in school and grandchildren in school, and we all have an opinion about how school should run. But there is very specific pedagogy. This is a profession. And I can go to my doctor and I can Google my symptoms and say, hey, I think I have, you know, this thing. But in the end, he's he or she are the medical professional. Um, and so finding that balance between advocating for your children and having an opinion about education and then also having teachers and principals who are communicating and, and building that trust that they also have some, you know, really important background in how how do you do that that learning? How do students learn in the best way? And and sometimes it's, you know, tough love and sometimes it's about discipline. And a lot of times it's about um, what we call pedagogy. Um, how do you teach it the right way? So finding that balance um, in a in a world where everybody feels like we're all an expert is is a is a tricky one. And I think one of the underlying things that uh, all parents are concerned about is safety in the schools. And of course, this is uh, not a brand new thing, but it is something that has occurred more and more uh, as far as uh, public information. We have some some uh, very tragic things that have happened in schools, and teachers and safety officers are put under a lot of strain that uh, we didn't have maybe 30 years ago as 
much of a problem as we have today. Where does that fit in the picture? Yeah, you know, I I wish we had a a, a magic wand to wave. I, I I think it's been exacerbated by COVID as well. So we've had these issues with more, as you've seen, gun violence. People bring guns to school in a in a way that other than just having a you know a hunting a hunting rifle in your truck, it's people are it's 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 worrisome and it makes parents very nervous. Um, it makes the situation entirely different for for teachers and principals. And it's not just that, but it's also just disruptions within the classroom. I think we we think about sort of all these um, shooter drills and and that on one end of the spectrum. But the, the other end is just one student in the classroom being disruptive because they're they're not learning at home how to how to sit still or how to 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 behave in the classroom and where is that relationship and and at what point do you decide that that student should stay in the classroom versus be pulled out and if you pull them out where do they go there's some really important conversations being had um, at the legislature and with the department of public instruction thinking through you know how can we handle these situations better to the best benefit to every student, right? Is it, I don't think it's the right answer to pull a student out who's disrupting the classroom and then send them home, right? You're, you're only making the problem worse for that child, but at the same time, you have the other students in the classroom to consider. So there's some important conversations that I'm frankly not the expert on, but paying close attention to because it does make or break um, the experience of of everyone within the school building. You pointed out that a good principal, there's a definite correlation between uh, a good principal and a good school. What about PTO or parent-teacher organizations? Is there a correlation between where the parent-teacher organization is uh, very strong in a, high, in a school uh, versus one that's not? Well, there's correlation, but not necessarily causation. I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. I was a PTA parent. I was a six-time treasurer for my PTA. And I think there's an incredibly important role. But the research is actually clear that other kinds of engagement for parents, that sort of daily engagement with their with their child's homework and ensuring that they're getting to school on time and is, is far more important. In fact, some study, this has been a long time since I've seen this, but show that PTA, the kids of PTA parents actually do worse than other kids. So it's, it's the PTAs play an important role for the school. Don't get me wrong. My kids went to a Title I school. Our PTA raised money so that every student could go on field trips and do um, have arts programs. And, but on a, you know, on a, on an average $6 million operating budget for any given school in North Carolina, raising a couple thousand dollars is, is really pennies, right, in a drop in the bucket versus parents who are coming in and providing, you know, reading time or giving um, support to teachers or sitting down with their own children. There's just so much that parents can do that's um, really one-on-one -on -one support for their kids. And it's incredibly important and, and impactful. We started the program off talking about your teacher pay report uh, and I want to go back to that. You've got about four minutes to uh, summarize and introduce some additional facts on that and also tell people how they can read that report. Right. I'm very excited about this report. I, I, I don't think there's ever been quite this depth of an analysis of teacher pay done in North Carolina. And honestly, perhaps across the country, we had some of the best economists and education advisors in the country working on this with us. And 
and advising on it. But we what we found was interesting. I think we we came into it with things like we need to look at educator preparation and enrollment, and we need to look at average teacher pay compared to surrounding states. And what we learned along the way is that we're looking in the wrong places. So enrollment in ed prep programs is actually correlated with the economy. Um, in fact, last two years, we saw a 40% increase in enrollment in ed prep programs, even though we know that we have a teacher hiring crisis. Um, we also, as we looked at average teacher pay, we were shocked that when you look at average teacher pay, Average pay in North Carolina is about 10% above the living wage for a family of four with two incomes. Sounds about right. But then when we actually looked at the way teachers fall on the teacher pay schedule, and you can find this in our report, um, and about a third of our teachers in any given point in time are living below a living wage for a family of four during those critical years around 30 to 40 when you're starting to, to grow and have a family. So starting with those basic points that we really hadn't as a, as a state and frankly as a nation really thought about how do we fix this fundamentally structurally flawed um, step and lane schedule where it takes 15 years. Now it used to take 25. There was a big investment in 2014 to 2018 post great recession to, to pull the pay schedule forward um, from 25 years to 15, but we would, we would offer it needs to come forward to more like five, five years. So when you become fully licensed that you're able to support a family. So that's one of the major points that we really were um, excited to to see because it, it helped explain the experience and why we're losing teachers, um, you know, early in, in their career. The other major point that we found that was really interesting is we knew that the, obviously, it's a female-dominated workforce. 80% of our teachers are female, and it's been that way for 50-plus years, and our report kind of goes through that whole history of why. But part of it is that pay women with bachelor's degrees are paid less than men on average, and so you're pulling from a pool where teacher pay was an appealing pay level. We were able to plot out over 40 years of women's bachelor's degree pay compared with teacher pay and found that over the last few years, they flipped. So teacher pay is now below average women's pay. So you have to really step back and think we are we are no longer able to sort of rely on a workforce where this is their best possible career opportunity, where when we were relying on a workforce where women were not the breadwinners in their home, where their husband was able to support their family with their income. And so we have to really rethink like, who is the what pool of talent are we trying to appeal to? And I would say that we're trying to appeal to the whole talent within the state of North Carolina. And to do that, we really have to rethink the compensation model so people can find that report on our website under our policy briefs, which is bestnc.org forward slash policy briefs, or you can find it under our resources, which is also where they can find our facts and figures page. Perfect timing. Thank you so much for so many interesting insights. Our guest has been Brenda Berg, president of C and CEO of Best North Carolina. And uh, uh, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Uh, Jason Kong has produced our program, and he promises another interesting guest next week on the same group of stations. And so until next week, same time, same station, have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.